Well, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the influence battle in Lebanon continuing and even heating up. We're going to talk about the formation of ANCUS, uh, that's Australia, the UK, and the US. And last but not least, we'll be talking about the naval arms race between the US and China. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, China, last week, sailed three warships, mainly guided missile destroyers, off the coast of the Aleutian Islands. Uh, those are the island chain southwest of Alaska. The They sort of make a string from Alaska into the far east of Russia. And so the Chinese sailed the warships off of those islands, uh, much to... Much to people's in over here in the United States, much to their annoyance, uh, rightfully so, um, we don't want foreign warships sailing through our waters, but, you know me, I'll just point out that this was a very logical, I, I don't know how people didn't see this coming, when they decided it was a good idea to sail carrier battle groups through the South China Sea and sail destroyers through the Straits of Taiwan, I don't know how you do that and don't expect something like this to happen in response there's just one of the number of reasons why i don't want us over there because people yeah people act slow when it comes to these (laughs) sorts of issues it's like action reaction but no one thinks about the reaction they just go for we're just we're just gonna sail carrier battle groups through the South China Sea because freedom of the seas. But okay. Anyway, I saw this coming. I don't know. If, I don't know if you saw it coming. I I know for a fact that the people who got us into this mess didn't see it coming because they're the ones outraged. Um. Yeah. Just. Ugh. I know I said it last episode, but the, these people are silly. Uh, meanwhile, Taiwan has increased their arms spending by $9 billion. And here's another point of contention I have with the current situation. And my point here is, where was this like 10 or 15 years earlier? Where was it at? Where was it 10 to 15 years ago? Because China's been there threatening to take the island back by force for at least the last 10 to 15 years. Uh... Technically longer, but, you know, the the capability gap between that rhetoric and actually being able to do it has gotten to the point over the last 10 to 15 years where they could have done it without U.S. intervention. And now we're getting to the point where even with U.S. intervention, I would argue the Chinese would still be able to take the island uh, just due to the changing of technology in favor of such uh, operations because it's so close to home. Uh, we're kind of in a bit of a defensive cycle where it's easier to defend yourself than it is to attack. Um, so where was this 10 to 15 years ago? They've increased the budget, their arms spending by $9 billion, which is no small beans, but why would you wait until now to do this? It's better late than never. I still think they're going to lose, And at this point, it's just a matter of how painful can they make the process of taking the island for China. Um, But why didn't anyone think to do this earlier? I mean, what was going on? And that's a a genuine question. I mean, what was going on? You knew that they were getting belligerent. You knew they were flying their jets through your airspace. You knew they were sailing warships closer and closer to you. You knew they were building islands in the South China Sea. And building military bases on those islands. Where was this at? Just forget 1015. Where was this at five years ago when 
people were first really talking. Well, I guess that would be like seven years ago. But when people were first really talking about the artificial islands in the South China Sea, where what was Taiwan up to? Well, what were they just they were just chilling out and watching this go down? Because I know they finally have a doctrine that makes sense for them, and that's not to rely on super duper expensive military equipment, um, but they instead to rely on cheaper equipment that's easy to use, has good effectiveness, and that they can hide easily in, say, underground bunkers, which is what they should have been doing and planning to do from the beginning. Now, again, I still think they'll lose that war, but strategic thinking, you want to give yourself the best chance, that's the best chance you have. Where was all of this at? I really do not know. Better late than never. You're still going to lose, but you've cost yourself all that time in the process. So, big disappointment to Taiwan. Uh, good luck. Hopefully we don't get involved in that mess. Uh, I think these people will try to get us there. But, uh, we'll move on to Japan. Because Japan, a, a parliament member in Japan, has said that they want to expand the dimensions of the U.S.-Japanese alliance to include a Taiwan contingency. Um, and his argument for this was essentially due to the proximity of Taiwan to some islands near Taiwan that are owned by Japan, Japan's Sakishima Islands. Um, And so the threat there is that China, in the event that they try to take Taiwan, might try to, you know, grab up those islands as well, maybe cover the flanks, or perhaps if they were to take Taiwan independently, then they could pivot to try to take those islands because they are technically disputed with China. So if China had the ability and, say, a massive island, Taiwan, to be as a, a staging ground for such an operation, they could try to do it. So Japan wants to preempt that by having a Taiwan contingency, which is probably going to include Japanese naval support for the island. And I, once again, pat myself on the back for being right, because if you remember, every now and then I bring this up, you go way back, Japan altered their constitution um, away from being purely defensive towards being allowed to go to war on behalf of an ally, defending an ally. And I asked the question, who are Japan's allies? What is an, What makes you an ally of Japan? Who are Japan's allies? The answer, whoever Japan wants to be an ally can be an ally overnight, and they can deploy their military. And one of the countries at the top of that list was Taiwan, uh, but this courtesy could theoretically be extended even to, say, North Korea, if they really felt like it. And by they, I mean Japan, not North Korea. I don't see North Korea asking for help. But um, here we go. It's here now. Japan is looked or at the very least, these conversations are starting to be had about a Taiwan contingency to stop Chinese expansionism. Um, Don't know how successful they'll be. Uh, I don't mean to paint China as some omnipotent force. I just mean to say that it's going to be pretty relatively uh, easy for China to take Taiwan and exponentially harder to stop them from doing so. Uh, For matters of logistics, even for Japan, who's closer by than the United States is. But the logistics just really favor China. And the technology of the day really favors China and the assets everyone has available to them and can bring to bear to this conflict really favors China. China just has a lot going for it in this specific conflict over Taiwan. Should it come to a conflict... And the only way I see it not coming to conflict is two ways. Either one, China just decides not to take the island. Or two, Taiwan uh, hands itself over peacefully. I don't see either of those happening. So conflict is more likely. But um, 
Japan's getting involved. Taiwan is finally taking its defense seriously. And China's giving the U.S. a taste of its own medicine. Uh, a medicine I was not in favor of us giving to begin with. But, you know, I don't get to run these policies. Other people get to run these policies. And now those other people have gotten me into this mess. And you're doing, no, 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 no. Did I ever tell you how great isolationism was? <laughs> um, but speaking of the good old U.S., uh, we have ended the travel ban with Europe. Um, most European nations, I believe, under the condition that the people coming are vaccinated. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts because uh, they want 5 million doses uh, and booster shots now. And twice, and what, what is it? Uh, they want pills now? They, they want pills now on top of three doses of the vaccine I, I don't know what these people want from me uh, but they're not getting it uh, so uh, I, I really don't know how this is going to work out because they keep adding new things that you need on top because first it was vaccine uh, but then they got rid of the Johnson's and Johnson vaccine which was the one dose the one shot and only the two shot vaccines were allowed to be used um, so there was, you need to be fully vaccinated. Then they're talking about dose number three. Now they're talking about pills uh, that you have to take. I, I forget if it was twice a day or if it was like twice a year. Um, but if it's pills we're talking about, it's uh, it might be like twice a day or something. Um, so the, the bar keeps getting moved. So I'm interested in seeing um, how that impacts this new agreement. Because... At first, if we were talking about, like, literally just February of this year, vaccination, you get the Johnson Johnson vaccine, oh, you're good to go, one shot. Um, Then comes, what was it, March when they got rid of it and said it wasn't uh, viable. You get to March, and now you need two shots. You get to now, where you need three shots. Um, So I'm interested in seeing... Uh, just some of the stories that might come out of this where I thought I was vaccinated and then uh, there was another one and I suddenly wasn't able to go. Now that'd be pretty uh, unfortunate, but I'm, I'm interested. I'm just, just due to the changing nature of these rules, um, how this impacts this agreement here because the, the meaning of the word keeps changing because the rules keep changing. So... Uh, interested in seeing how this goes. Uh, the U.S. and NATO, their troops have engaged in military drills with Ukraine. Um, this in light of Belarusian and Russian military drills themselves in the same region. And tensions in Eastern Europe. Um, yet another theater where I see people trying to get us into. Uh, that we're likely going to lose if we do get involved in. Again, don't mean to paint Russia and China as being omnipotent forces, but I very, very strongly urge folks to uh, look at a map. Taiwan is extremely close to China. China has the largest navy in the world now. And China's navy is not floating around the entire world. It's concentrated near China, and we'll, we'll get to more of that later on, but in on the other side of the world, you get Ukraine. Where is Ukraine? They're right on Russia's border. Ukraine is a very, very flat country. Russia's tanks and motor vehicles and jets would have a very fun time steamrolling any Ukrainian opposition if they actually came to blows, but for now... Russia's opting towards the destruction of the Ukrainian ability to fight, and partially their will to fight, really, um, by this proxy war that they're engaged in via the rebels in eastern Ukraine. So, NATO and U.S. are doing drills with Ukraine to try to bolster them and maybe improve morale and maybe give sell them some weapons, but if it came to blows... I'm my money's on the Red Army, not NATO and US. Just for the sake that the Red Army can amass itself on Ukraine's border 
faster than the U.S. can get there. And they'd probably be at the Dnieper before we had a force that was large enough to do something about it in Ukraine. The logistics just favors Russia in that conflict uh, and the terrain, too. So there's that. So, again, another losing bet being placed by my government. And I have to just sit and watch uh, until the chickens come home to roost and hope hope that they don't. But it's looking like they will at some point. <laughs> so, pretty uh, dire situations that America is choosing to get itself into. Meanwhile, fears are persisting over the Chinese company Evergrande. Uh, you might have heard of it in the news. It is an agency that sp- uh, speculates in the real estate within China. And so it's having a bit of a debt problem right now. And because of how large it is and how much debt it has and how many people in China are dependent on it for their investment, there are now fears that it might default on its debts and take all of that money from the Chinese people with it. And should that happen, people fear that we might see a depression in China, or if not from this, it could, you know, trigger a chain reaction where other companies uh, and other firms who also have very similar debt problems suddenly go under, and it sort of sort of ends up resembling like the the series of bank runs in the US during the depression in the early stages of the depression when everybody wanted everybody went to the bank to get their money and found out it wasn't there and then these banks collapsed under the weight of their fractional reserves um so there's a there goes my my personal argument against fractional reserve banking you, you keep people's money where it is but um we could be seeing something like that happen in China, and due to the size of the Chinese economy, we might see the impacts of that become global. We might see countries start getting desperate, or act in desperation due to their economic conditions. The last time we saw something like that was the 1930s, which gave rise to a whole bunch of new authoritarian-style governments I say new, most people would just say authoritarian, but I say new because most of the world was under some authoritarian government, as it had been for basically all of human history. But you got new ones, like socialism, communism, fascism, national socialism. Um, you, got, you got new ones like that. So, would we see something similar out of this crisis? Or would it just lead to different results? Who knows? But what we do know is that should China's economy face such a depression, it will go global because of how dependent countries are on China and how integrated China is with the global economy. So, this is something we keep our eyes on, at least for a little bit, to see what some of the chain reaction might be should this company go under. I think the Chinese government will subsidize it to keep that from happening. But the possibility of that not being the case is there. Which means the possibility of a Great Depression 2 is there as well. And that could open up a whole bunch of doors and possibilities that I cannot predict myself and might not even be able to see in the midst of it should it happen. But uh, such a crisis like that might provoke war with Taiwan just for the sake of national pride Um, and to keep people from being angry against the Chinese government but keep Chinese people from being angry against the Chinese government by getting them a victory so we could be on the lookout for that and last but not least we have US border the US border witnessing huge waves of illegal immigration I saw pictures of people on horseback with lassos trying to grab people (laughs) <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and in Sudan, there are protests over the peace agreement between the government and various rebel groups. 
Uh, so, a uh, bit of weirdness uh, happening around the world. Some things mild, some things more uh, serious. But we have some more interesting things to talk about as well in just a moment. All right, and we're back to get into the meat of things. And we'll start this off by talking about Lebanon. Uh, yes, Lebanon update. Let's go. So, and I have for the my little abbreviation, uh, not abbreviation, side note for the title here is uh, this is the part where things get interesting. So we'll just get into it. And recently, the Lebanese Hezbollah branch, and there's a branch within Palestine as well, but um, the Lebanese Hezbollah branch has managed an acquisition of Iranian fuel. It, they've got it to go through, and the fuel is now there. Uh, it claims that this was done to help the country during its economic meltdown, which is currently still in full effect and full swing and people are really hurting so we can we can at least attribute some truth to that statement whether you agree with Hezbollah or you hate its existence uh, as I know it is a bit of a divisive thing here in the states which is you know a bit odd considering you, we know we know where I stand on this I don't, I don't think we should be involved in these conflicts and politics over here but we are so we have division over this group but um Hezbollah claims that that this procurement of fuel was done to help the country um and it probably will we'll just be honest it probably will last week a bunch of trucks uh a huge convoy of them uh loaded with Iranian fuel started rolling into Al Ain which is a town in northeastern Lebanon and as they came in, they were met with praise and celebration. Um, there were flags, there were banners that were flown, some of which read, Thank you, Iran. Thank you, Assad's Syria. Those are two big statements right there. Because when you look at a map, and you see where northeastern Lebanon is, you see that that is on the border with Syria not it's not on the coastline so the oil didn't this town didn't get their oil from the water they got it from overland and if it's from Iran and that fuel is coming overland it had to go through Iraq and Syria to get to Lebanon how very interesting that that's the route that this goes through Right through Iran's sphere of influence. Huh. Well, well, well. What more can I say? Lebanon is officially a part of uh, Iran's sphere of influence, you know? I, I was a bit iffy on it, but, you know, here we go. Uh, I, I'll just pat myself on the back again for being right. You know, it, it ain't easy being this damn good, but, uh... <laughs> But yeah, they have fuel coming from Iran through Iraq and Syria, which means Iraq and Syria had to consent to this uh, and consent to the protection of these these oil tankers. Because let's be honest, it, these are very violent places right now and could have been attacked, but they didn't get attacked. So we have fuel from Iran going to Lebanon and flags and banners were flown saying thank you to Iran, thank you to Assad, Syria. Um, and I believe that it, it is also worth mentioning here, in this context before we move forward, that Hezbollah, while they have members within the Lebanese government, they themselves are not the government, however, they opt to behave as though they were. They negotiated this deal on their own, not within the government of Lebanon. So, that essentially complicates things a little bit as now this major achievement uh, and major piece of help and aid to the Lebanese people is now technically a blow to the legitimacy of the Lebanese government uh, especially given the current state of the country's economy 
which is largely going to be blamed on the government for the government not averting the crisis. So we might see an internal battle within Lebanon as things develop between who actually is the legitimate government of Lebanon. Is it the government in the parliament or is it Hezbollah? Maybe we'll get a different answer than we thought uh, when this is all over, especially if Hezbollah keeps making moves like this. And especially if Iran and Syria are willing to back them up, we might see Hezbollah come to dominate Lebanon and actually be the government of Lebanon. We don't know. We just keep our eyes open, I guess. Meanwhile, Iran walks away from this, having made significant headway in the influence battle in Lebanon that we talked about while really doing little. They, they haven't done much. They just gave them some fuel. And because of how desperate the situation there is, that fuel means much more than it would have been otherwise. They've also secured uh, their grip over their sphere of influence. Because, again, that fuel, if it comes by land from Iran to Lebanon, it has to go through Iraq it has to go through Syria, meaning Iraq has to be on board, and apparently they are. It means Syria, or the parts of Syria controlled by Assad, have to be on board, and apparently they are. And now Lebanon is the end, is the end destination of Iranian fuel. That creates a dependency. That creates a market for Iranian oil. It creates a new member, a solid member of the Iranian sphere of influence, especially should Hezbollah come to power. Because Hezbollah is another one of the groups in the region backed by Iran. Another, ex And if they do come to power, it would be another example of Iran putting their weight behind the winning side of a conflict and would really, really cement their power in the Middle East because it would give them a true corridor to the Mediterranean. Uh, a land corridor from their borders through Iraq, through Syria, to Lebanon, who itself has coastline, uh, coastal frontage in the Mediterranean. Truly excellent moves being made by Iran, with limited cost, but high effectiveness. They're getting a lot of bang for their buck, and they're continuing to get a lot of bang for their buck. And now the dividends are showing. I mean, the other week... We were talking about how Iranian militias were there fighting alongside Syrian and Russian troops to take a city, to take back a city in Syria where the rebels were holding out. Iranian militias, just one step down from, well, two steps if you're counting like a National Guard or something, but not that many steps down from an actual Iranian army going on campaign in someone else's country to secure their influence over that country. Iran is the dominant power in the Middle East right now. And they're really flexing their muscles. And we, we might see Yemen and Lebanon go from being distant, uh, more distant members of Iran's sphere of influence to being more solid members of the sphere of influence. Uh, we don't know, but it's looking like that's the route we're on right now, at least for the time being. Iran has arisen. Uh, I guess we'll call them Persia. <laughs> and we'll see what they do with uh, Afghanistan, uh, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Uh, we'll see how things go. We'll really see. And I guess this is just, uh, I guess it's just another battle in the influence battle. Well, I, I guess that'd be an influence war, but another phase of the influence battle we have entered into where Iran is a more active participant here and coming at the situation from a different perspective than, say, France has. 
and where France has an economic recovery plan, and Israel has the threat of its military might, Iran has oil. And even now, that's proving to be quite the powerful tool. And that's what we have for Lebanon. Now, we're going to get into some of these uh, Asia-Pacific tensions. Asia-Pacific tensions. And we'll start that off with uh, AUKUS. Uh, and what AUKUS is, I, I realize now I've written ANKUS in all of my... Every instance where I've mentioned uh, this alliance, where it's actually a UK US, not a NK US, um, because it's an abbreviation for Australia, a the UK, UNK, and the US. So AUKUS, not ANKUS, uh, but we're just we're, we're going to ignore the blatant error in my notes here, and we're just going to pretend that I don't have them. So <laughs> the UK and the US have pledged. To protect Australia, um, as well, primarily, you, you know, yeah, they're just they're pretty they're pledging to protect Australia, uh, and to use assets available to them to do so. Now, this is new foreign entanglement uh, has been named AUKUS, and I've gone over what the abbreviation stands for. Uh, the clear and obvious target of this coalition between Australia, the UK, and the US is China. It's just out there in the open. It's not It's not even hidden. It's not It's not one of those, oh, it's just an alliance to strengthen ties. There's no real intention behind it. No, everyone knows and no one's even hiding that it's it's China. It's China. This, this is a coalition meant to do something about China. Uh, and... And I, I guess it comes at a pretty decent time because China now has the world's largest navy, apparently, uh, with an estimated 360 vessels to the U.S. having around 300. And these are the total sizes of the navies. China has surpassed the U.S. as having the largest navy in the world. And the main critique, well, and I guess I should say before I move on, that this has sparked a whole bunch of debate over the effectiveness of the two navies. I know this is a, a debate and a conversation that's been going on for a while, um, especially as China's naval buildup became apparent to the world a couple years ago. Um, but one of the one of the main distinctions that have arisen over that debate was quality versus quantity. And obviously, people would bring up the U.S.'s qualitative advantage over any potential quantitative advantage that China would attempt to use in such a conflict. Um, so that, that that's sort of like a, a ground-level distinction between the two navies that has prevailed even even till now really uh, so those two sides are pretty accurate representations of the arguments presented for and against these navies uh, in who would be more dominant and the main one of the all the other main critiques that I see regarding uh, the Chinese Navy is that China lacks power projection capabilities and its navy is only really able to operate in the waters around China itself. Uh, whereas the U.S. Navy, via its many supercarriers and its nuclear-powered uh, ships, can sail around the world, really. And they can bring in an air force, essentially, to bear wherever they go. And that's the argument in favor of the U.S., uh, tonnage due to all those heavy weapons and planes and nuclear engines gives the U.S. a tonnage advantage. Uh, but I I don't think tonnage uh, and I don't think tonnage means as much now as it would have meant just, uh, say, 70 years ago. Uh, 
you know, I'll just go and say 100 years ago, because the carrier weighed less than the battleship, uh, but the battleship became obsolete because of the carrier, so, and that wasn't even like a super carrier either, just carriers in general, but we'll, we'll take it back to 100 years ago, uh, during good old World War One, where tonnage, that was sort of the last time tonnage meant as much as we give it credit for today, um, even with submarines, because a battleship could sink you with a, uh, it, it had the guns, it had big guns, which meant they were heavier, because you needed bigger shells and bigger munitions to fire them, and if it had more guns than you, and they were bigger, then you effectively had a super weapon, really, on your hands, and if that super weapon was pointing its guns at you, well, chances were you were gonna you were gonna lose. Uh, Germany went around this using submarines um, to limited effectiveness in the First World War. Uh, they surprisingly they did surprisingly well. Uh, most people underestimated the abilities of the submarine until the show, uh, until the fireworks happened, and they realized, oh my god, they can blockade Britain from under the seas. Britannia rules the waves, but what about under them? Does Britannia rule under the waves? It looks like Germany rules those. Oh my god, Britain can be starved to death. Starved into submission. Even though we have the largest navy in human history. So... And when you look at the tonnage of a submarine versus a dreadnought, the the new big boy when World War One came around, the difference is stark. But the submarine could sink all of your ships with a single, with just a couple salvos as well of their torpedoes. So tonnage nowadays is in sort of the same boat. Uh, don't that pun was unintentional. Where Smaller ships, if they're carrying, say, an anti-ship missile on board, they will obviously weigh less than, say, a supercarrier, but if that missile hits, or if a number of those missiles hit, the supercarrier goes down. And it might have a greater weight than the ship firing those missiles, or the number of ships firing those missiles. And it wouldn't take too many of those anti-ship missiles to sink a supercarrier if they actually, you know, if they hit the target. Because these missiles are moving really fast and ships nowadays are not meant to really take hits as much as they're meant to deal damage. So you get a bunch of holes in your ship and it goes down and you're carrying all these planes and complicated equipment on board and it's oh goodness the whole carrier goes down tonnage might not mean as much as we give it credit for today similarly to how it didn't mean too much uh back in the day just a hundred years ago uh, when it really started to be apparent that maybe tonnage wasn't the most important metric anymore it was the weapons because you could have you could have the biggest battleship, but if the other guy has a submarine and your battleship can't hit his submarine, you're gonna get sunk. You could have the biggest of you could have the biggest of dreadnoughts, but if the other guy has a carrier with a couple planes on it, well, you're gonna get sunk. And that's what happened to the British uh, near Singapore when they were fighting Japan. They got their dreadnoughts got sunk, uh, even though they had way more tonnage. They got destroyed. So I don't think tonnage means as much even today as people continue to give it credit for. I think the anti-ship missile is a bit of a game changer. Uh, we'll, we ultimately won't know unless shooting happens and these weapons and weapon systems are really put to the test. Um, but I don't think people are comparing these two fleets properly. Um, because a key detail that is omitted when people talk about the limited range of the Chinese Navy and how it can't project power, um, and I guess there's two points to that, is one, they have the String of Pearls, 
so they can project power they just can't do it globally they can do it where they have friendly ports but that takes them to all the places that they are actually interested in uh southeast europe the middle east east africa uh potential blockade of india it gives them ac- it gives them access to the other side of the straits of malacca they have the string of pearls they can project power everywhere that they would really need to do so they have artificial islands in the south china sea they can project power there the chinese navy may not be able to go global but they are super regional sort of multi-continental in their range courtesy of the string of pearls and to those i'll again bring up the portuguese empire who did the same thing sailing the long way around africa and they managed to get to the arabian sea the body of water between india and the arabian peninsula and they rerouted the spice trade the spices that came by sea rerouted it made it go the long way around africa instead of going to uh egypt uh docking in egypt and then being carried on land to the mediterranean because this is before the suez canal the portuguese rerouted the spice trade to go the long way around africa courtesy of their own string of pearls but no one would say no one would dare say that the portuguese could not project power uh, because they obviously did china has the same thing they can project power where they are interested in the south china sea the waters around india the middle east the eastern mediterranean and southern europe and east africa those are all the places of key chinese interest that their navy would need to go and they have the range to get to all those places so when people talk about china not being able to project power you gotta sort of take that with a grain of salt because they're talking about the range of each ship individually versus having bases available that gives them a route to places and uh, not enough people pay attention to that i believe and that's that's my opinion on it and that's i feel that it is overlooked a bit too much when talking about this topic and I'll just do my part and say that we should take those into account and look back to the Portuguese Empire because China has effectively done the same just in reverse. They're not coming from Europe the long way around Africa to India. They're coming from eastern China through the Mediterranean, not the Mediterranean, through the Straits of Malacca around India and then they get to East Africa. They have their own string of pearls. So that's one thing that I feel uh is a detail that is missed in this topic but the larger topic well the larger detail of this topic that i feel isn't discussed anywhere near as much as it should and this is the the real kicker here even going by the arguments that most people who doubt the chinese navy make they say that china can't project power beyond its home waters look at the zones of conflict that China is currently engaged in, the South China Sea, and increasingly prepared for Taiwan. Those are the waters immediate to China. Look at where the Chinese Navy is. They're, they're the largest Navy in the world now, and they are concentrated in these waters around China. The U.S. is not, and that is the killer. That's the killer. Because I brought this up when I talked about them and their ability to take Taiwan. All of their ships are designed to operate close to bases. They, they don't want to sail around the world. They want to sail where they have bases. Which is, again, how the Portuguese did it. Except this time around, you have air power. So if the Chinese Navy is always going to be within range of some land base due to the limited the limitations on their range that also means they're always going to be within range of land-based air assets so it's never going to be the chinese navy alone that you're going to have to deal with if you're dealing with them 
you're going to have to factor in the Chinese Air Force. And that's a detail I feel, uh, I know, is completely ignored. Is that if China can only operate in waters proximate to China, and the waters proximate to China are within range of the Chinese Air Force, then that means you're never, you're never going to be able to have a fair fight against the Chinese Navy. You're always going to have to deal with the Chinese Air Force at the same time. And everyone knows that if you're up against an enemy who has an Air Force and you're fighting them close to their own coastline, they can bring more planes by land than you can by sea. Even if every supercarrier was fully loaded up, uh, the carriers operating here by the U.S., they would be completely outnumbered and outmatched by the Chinese Navy. Um, well, not the Chinese Navy, by the Chinese Air Force, who would be acting in support of that Navy. Because you'd be fighting them really, really close to China itself. And that is completely overlooked in discussions about uh, comparing the two navies is location 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 where will the chinese navy be found they're going to be found wherever they have a base so they're going to be found in waters around china they're going to be found by their bases through the string of pearls which also means that they're also they're always going to be operating within range of planes they're always going to have planes to back them up if something goes wrong and that is the biggest detail that I want to bring into this conversation um, when we talk about the two navies. Because the U.S., its supercarriers have a lot of planes, but China has anti-ship missiles. Their navy is always going to be within range of its air force. Its air force has naval bombs of their own. And then there's, if you're operating that close to China itself, then China is going to have land-based anti-ship missiles and ballistic missiles that it's going to fire at you. That is, in essence, the definition of an unwinnable fight. The U.S. Navy, in the deep blue, can beat the Chinese Navy, even, even with, say, the numbers disadvantage. Uh, they, they'd have a better chance of doing it in the deep blue. Because uh, all those anti-ship missiles. But if you're doing it in waters proximate to China and Chinese bases, then the advantage goes to China. It really does. Because of all the technologies I've mentioned and all the assets they can bring to bear. And that differential between assets makes the difference. It makes all the difference. And which is why I feel that it's important we look at where such conflicts would take place like say in or around the waters around Taiwan who would win that the US Navy spread out across the world or the Chinese Navy concentrated in its waters around China because again China has 360 vessels the US is around 300 all 360 of those vessels are operating extremely close to China itself. Whereas 300 U.S. ships, that's the total U.S. Navy. But we're not talking about the total U.S. Navy. We're talking about the U.S. Pacific Fleet. That's what we're talking about. Sorry, that's the garage opening. That's what we're talking about. The U.S. Pacific Fleet. And when we break down the numbers from the 300 total ships the United States has uh, to just the Pacific Fleet, which is the 7th and 3rd Fleets. The 3rd Fleet has around 100 ships. Um, and the 7th Fleet... Sorry about that again. So the 3rd Fleet has around 100 ships. And the 7th Fleet, on a good day, has about 70 ships. So that totals about 170 ships, a little over half of the U.S. Navy, is capable of being brought to bear uh, in the short term to a conflict in or around the waters around China. Which means that at best, the U.S. Navy is going to bring half, less than half really, because 300 
is about, it would be 340. 170 ships times 2 is 340. China has 20 extra ships on top of that. So less than half of the total Chinese Navy would be brought to bear here, whereas the entire Chinese Navy can be brought to bear in the conflict zones that we're discussing. The South China Sea, Taiwan. So these are things that are completely ignored because people are ignoring the location. People are ignoring the logistics of this conflict. And that's, again, one of the key reasons I think China would win in a conflict for Taiwan or even the South China Sea. They can bring their assets to bear. They can bring them to bear faster. They can, every ship China produces can immediately go out into the conflict zone, whereas even if the U.S. could produce the same number of ships that China can on the same timetables, our ships would have to, it would take them months to get across the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, and even get to the conflict zone. By then, China's numerical advantage locally is even bigger. On top of having land-based air assets, on top of having land-based anti-ship missiles, on top of having, already from the offset, more than double the number of ships available to them in the regions we're talking about. I think people aren't looking at that. And I fear that our strategic thinkers, who, uh, if I'm being honest about my opinions on them, I think that they don't know how to, these strategic thinkers can't read a map, nor do they know how to think. Uh, that's, That's my opinion on them. But no one's really talking about that. And I fear that because our leaders aren't factoring that in, they're going to get us into a conflict that we're not prepared for. On top of it being unnecessary, in my opinion, but how are you going to win that? It's two-to-one advantage, regional superiority. Every ship China produces can go immediately into the conflict zone. They have their air force, their entire air force, available to them on top of anti-ship missiles. That again, as they are produced, can be fired at you almost immediately. This is this is just not the place to go picking a fight with China. Uh, at least at least with the technologies available to us right now, this is a losing battle, a super duper losing battle. And I I don't think enough of what I have just said to you is gonna is being taken into account when talking about. Um, potential conflict here. The entire U.S. Navy can't go there. The entire Chinese Navy is already there. And they have more ships than us. Already. So, I don't know. I feel like, uh, I feel like we're sleepwalking into something really, really bad. That's what I feel like. And for me, the solution is pretty simple, but no one wants, apparently no one in our leadership wants my solution, which is to just not be over there. That's the simple solution, but uh, I'm the taboo here, so we I just have to sit and watch. Just gotta sit and watch and make something of it, you know? I have the podcast, so I can at least vent. I can vent my frustrations about all these nonsensical things we're doing, but uh, ultimately I just have to watch and see how they go. And then I can report them to you uh, every week. So, yeah. Uh, The U.S. and the U.K., uh, in light of this growing naval uh, build-up and arms race, they've decided to team up to help Australia build a nuclear submarine fleet. They've decided to do that. Um, France apparently was supposed to be in on this deal, uh, but they were excluded at the end. Uh, much to their anger, uh, and I, I do mean anger, because they they were they were really upset. They've recalled their ambassadors to the U.S., the U.K., and Australia over this issue, um, and they've uh, the, you know that's not something countries do when they're happy. That's something countries do when they're really really upset. And now the French foreign minister 
uh, I, I hope I can get this right. <clears throat> Jean-Yves Le Drian. There we go. <laughs> so the French foreign minister Jean-Yves is currently on a tour with uh, throughout Europe. He's going to other European countries to discuss greater European strategic independence. So France has really basically decided to go their own way. They've decided to go their own way. And for right now, that includes the rest of Europe. But what happens when Europe doesn't go with them? Will France go their own way again? Or their own way squared? And really just, just be France? Just France? No NATO? Just France? They have West Africa. They have, they have all their military equipment they produce. They have a strong navy. They could do it. They could go their own way. And that's a possibility that I will keep on the table at all times. Because they maintain the ability to do so. And maintain the political will to act on their own. So, uh, especially as this incident has showed us. So, the possibility that they really, really go their own way. And I mean just France. Uh, in pursuing a French foreign policy. Rather than a western form or a nato foreign policy or an an a, a policy of our allies we might see france pursue a french foreign policy beyond just west africa but globally we might see them reach out to russia more we might even see them leave nato to convey to the russians that they want that alliance we could, we could see some we could see some really really weird stuff if France really felt like doing it um we'll probably uh, uh, we'll probably have to wait until after the elections to see uh, any definitive moves made by France but considering that they're in an election year technically right now their elections are in April I believe we could see some really weird stuff happen uh by made really weird moves made by Macron that he put off until now that even Marine Le Pen should she win in the election might be forced to keep those policies around or if Macron wins he'll just continue them or we, we don't know but France is in an interesting spot right now where they're being pushed by geopolitical events to go their own way on top of um being in an election year, which generally tends to make countries who have elections act a bit rashly. So, there's those things to keep keep our eyes on. Uh, keep our eyes on. I don't think a European strategic independence is going to be achieved. So, my money's on France go either coming back, either reverting back to the reliance on the U.S. alliance system, or France going their own way. And for those who don't know what the U.S. alliance system is, stay tuned because next episode, I'm uh, I'll talk about it and detail what it is and why it, it and its interests are actually not the same as those of the United States, despite them constantly being, despite the interests of the two constantly being mistaken as one and the same. I will explain to you the real state of affairs. And why I believe U.S. foreign policy is not being taken into account. The right way, anyway. But that's next episode. Uh, but for now, we have the U.K. and the U.S. to the exclusion of France, helping Australia build a nuclear submarine fleet. Um, China's response to this is either going to be to increase their own nuclear submarine fleet, or they'll gear part of their own, they'll gear part of their naval buildup towards anti-ship, uh, I mean anti-submarine capabilities. So let me re rephrase that. China's response to this is either going to be to increase their own nuclear submarine fleet, or they will gear part of their naval buildup towards anti-submarine capabilities. Uh, maybe even both. Maybe even both. However, should this happen, just like with them sailing ships off of the Aleutian Islands in Alaska, 
I am willing to bet that the people who got us into this, into this naval arms race will be the last ones to connect the dots between what we're doing now with Australia and what China will be doing in the future. But my uh, this great disillusionment with uh, the current foreign policy team who've been in charge, uh, we'll, we'll just put that aside and we'll say that, you know, that's all I have for you today. Because, you know, yeah, it's been a pretty eventful week. It's been a pretty eventful week. And um, we'll just have to keep our eyes on a lot of things, really. But that is, again, all that I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. France is about to go rogue. And the U.S. is getting into another foreign entanglement. But, but, my disagreement with the second one aside, we're going to have fun watching these developments together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, servus.